Hello and welcome to the Friday, January 14th, 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. Support provided by New Pioneer Food Co-op, celebrating 50 years as Eastern Iowa's source for locally and responsibly sourced groceries with stores in Iowa City, Coralville, and Cedar Rapids, and online through co-op cart at newpi.coop. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. How deep is the snow in Waterloo this morning? Not deep yet. Not deep yet. Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief for the Gazette. Good morning, Aaron. Any Good morning, and any uh, snowflakes? Yeah, snow yeah. Flakes? A little bit of snow. Um, uh, not too bad so far. I, I wanted to ask. Now that we have a sponsor, does my appearance fee get to go up? Yeah, it'll be doubled. <laughs> and Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman with the weather report from North Marion. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a whiteout. It's a blizzard. Either that, or we just haven't washed our we haven't washed our windows in a long time. Something like that. It's both for me. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to us on, on Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up, the legislature is in session. According to a 19th century New York official, quote, no man's life, liberty, or property are safe while the legislature is in session. If that's the case, we're in dangerous times again or still, depending on your perspective. The legislative session opened Monday with what passes for the usual fanfare, leadership speeches with promises of bipartisanship and apple pie or at least most of the speeches. Aaron, you listened to the Senate speeches from a distance, but uh, more on that later, where Senate President Jake Chapman warned of a quote, sinister agenda being pushed by the media and teachers right before our eyes. What the heck are you doing over there, Aaron? <laughs> so I'm gonna allow myself to editorialize just a little bit here. And I'm gonna say if, if those groups are all part of a sinister agenda, it's also a stupid agenda. Uh, because we chose to infiltrate the two of the lowest paying professions uh, in the world in order to accomplish our means. So uh, I feel like if I was part of a sinister agenda, I'd rather I'd be it as uh, some within an engineering firm or uh, something like that. So. Yeah. Get paid better, right. To be sinister, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A few, few of the Marvel villains, uh, you know, work in public <laughs> schools or... or I mean, Clark Kent was a newspaper reporter, but, you know, okay. I guess was, maybe J. Jonah Jameson. J. Jonah Jameson would be the, the, the yeah, exception. Maybe. Um, yeah, and that, is, that was certainly interesting. It got a lot of uh, reaction, as one might expect. Um, uh, Senator Chapman, um, and he had come into the session on this topic. Uh, he, he had already uh, said that he believes that some uh, librarians and teachers uh, should be put in jail for... Um, allowing certain books that they deemed to be obscene uh, to be distributed. So this wasn't um, a new thing or even necessarily a surprise. I guess it was just kind of striking in, in the, um, the way he, uh, you know, doubled down or tripled down, whatever um, multiplicity he's on at this point. Um, it, um, like, like you said, by saying that, he later said some, he wasn't speaking to all teachers, but there are 
clearly some <laughs> who have a sinister agenda. I'm, I'm sure that puts a lot of uh, the education field's minds at ease, uh, knowing that um, he wasn't coming after all of them necessarily with that. But yeah, I mean, that obviously had a, had a huge reaction. Um, um, teachers and, and uh, um, administrators have been uh, reacting um, all week uh, to that. And, and it's, uh, it's going to make that topic interesting uh, too moving forward because there will, I mean, at the end of the day, that's words that a speech um, and they have their own chilling effect. Um, and, and eventually we're going to see legislation on this too. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Governor Reynolds uh, made a proposal on the topic and her condition of the state, but it's as far as what she's requiring in that proposal goes, it's fairly um, mild or unobtrusive, I guess is, is is what the way I'd put it. Um, she's requiring that uh, districts put um, uh, basically catalog all their library books and educational materials um, online, which they're already required to have those lists. The, the only new requirement with the governor is that they, they'd be published online. So what she's proposing isn't super intrusive. Uh, now, that's just her proposal. Obviously, it'd be interesting to see what Senate Republicans propose. It's interesting, uh, too, that yesterday when we were recording Iowa Press, which you can watch this weekend on Iowa PBS, we asked uh, House Speaker Pat Grassley about this. And his comment was, quote, from my perspective as the House leader, some of the other conversations about criminal penalties and those kind of things, that's not the conversations I want to have in the House. So uh, it doesn't sound like uh, President Chapman is going to get much support across the rotunda. Uh, and then he's not speaking for the entire legislature when he, he calls for rounding up teachers and, and journalists and, and uh, uh, I don't know what, hanging them in the public square. But uh. Tarn feather. Yeah, I, I, I heard just to, to piggyback on that, I heard something very similar from the House Education Committee Chairman Dustin Height, uh, basically indicating that uh, they're not in the same place as Senate Republicans on this. Yeah. Aside from uh, Chapman's screed, uh, anything stand out in these opening day speeches? Uh, any enlightenment for Iowans? Um, the one thing I will say, and 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 I'm not saying good or bad or otherwise, but uh, just as far as content wise, Governor can, uh, Governor Reynolds' condition of the state address um, was pretty um, uh, meaty. She, there was a lot in there and and, and some big stuff. Um, how much of it? ultimately makes its way to her desk obviously is, is a different matter. She's done that before. I mean, the, 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 the proposal, um, I think this was two years ago. Now the pandemic has just completely destroyed my concept of time, but I think it was two years ago when she proposed the, the big sales tax shift and, and, and filling the natural resources fund. That was obviously a huge proposal that uh, went absolutely nowhere. Um, last year was the big ethanol mandate that, that ran, um, that ran into um, trouble at the legislature, although that one's back. But um, so, so the point being is one thing to say these things in a speech. It's another thing to get them legislatively approved, but she did put some big things out there. Obviously the income tax um, uh, thing uh, being, being one huge one in, in, in particular. Um, um, she, like I said, she mentioned her K-12 education uh, pitch. She, she's going to come back and make a proposal on um, private school tuition. Um, uh, again, uh, as I said, the ethanol things back. So there was a lot in there. Um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, it was a, it was a hearty agenda. 
Um, now, now we get to the, to the hard part, which is actually passing legislation. But I think that stood out to me for the first week. I think one of the highlights for me in those opening day speeches was when uh, Pat Grassley was talking about the demands of raising a family and running the family farm operation while his dad was recovering from COVID. And he quoted Hillary Clinton. It takes a village, he said. <laughs> I, I expected uh, Republicans to get up and walk out of the chamber, but <laughs> may, maybe that's just a- ancient history that they've forgotten that she said that. But uh, um, uh, Senator, uh, Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls of Corville uh, countered Chapman's message, warning against culture wars. So, Todd, it sounds like the agenda is set. We're going to imprison teachers and journalists, but yeah. Oh, probably not. I mean, Chapman's speech was kind of remarkable in uh, a few ways. I mean, number one, just, you know, within the context of history, I mean, we've seen a lot more. I mean, most of the time during the opening days of the session, you hear a lot of top leaders in both parties, at least in the past, you know, tout, you know, let's let's make Iowa public schools world-class schools. Let's, you know, help professionalize the teacher trade. Let's you know, do all these things to reform and transform public education. So the fact that, you know, that Jake Chapman assigned a sinister motive to, to uh, you know, these to anyone that's critical of his drive to, to ban books, he thinks are obscene. Uh, and, and basically, almost, well, I think he did basically make the make the argument that you're either get you're either for getting rid of these books, or you're against stuff like or you're for stuff like pedophilia and and deviant behaviors i mean it was it was pretty strong stuff and the other remarkable thing about it is this wasn't you know some off the rails rank and file lawmaker that you know that occasionally these things sort of happen you you know and this is the president of the senate he's the presiding officer he's among the top four people in leadership saying this stuff about sinister journalists which you know you know we've been the enemy of the people now for how many years? And so having a sinister agenda didn't really, didn't really hurt my feelings, but uh, the stuff about teachers is, is not only wrong and, and just, you know, already and contributes to the fact that, that, you know, we have a teacher shortage and that public education is not seen anymore in Iowa as a, as a or Iowa was not seen as a great place maybe to be a teacher. They lost collective bargaining. There've been other changes and, you know, he's saying these things as we've seen, you know, shouting matches and, and some threats of violence and things against school boards and educators. We just had one in, in Southeast Polk, I think, not too long ago where someone there was a bomb threat or some sort of a shooter threat. Uh, so when you go out in, in on, you know, on a stage as, as large as the legislature and speak to the state and say that, you know, people that are allowing, you know, these books on the shelves are are you know promoting promoting pedophilia i mean that's a those are the kind of words that are, that may you know incite someone to do something and that's i think is pretty reckless so you know i my own sinister agenda is uh has been well well underway for a while so it really didn't interrupt i really wasn't interrupted so uh and and, and i think that and i'm glad to hear that the house is sort of backing away from that i suspected they probably would but uh, and the and the governor didn't 
embrace, embraced, sort of embraced Chapman's rhetoric, but didn't embrace his proposal to jail teachers. But does anyone really think if that bill ever reached her desk that she would veto it? I can't remember the last time she vetoed anything substantial. So that's where we are. Culture war. Well, you know, I, I guess it's worth pointing out that, you know, we've been enemies of the state for some time now, but now we've got teachers on our <laughs> side. So it's it, it's spreading. It's spreading. Our ranks are growing. Are we going to be the axis of sinistry? Yeah. It's going to be the... <laughs> what other, we'll what have other, to work on that name. We'll what other low-wage low <laughs> industries out there can join us? Uh, maybe... <laughs> Well, restaurant think, workers who work for tips and then then we've then we've got the the perfect yeah. triumvirate there we taught the I, teachers about the, the dark arts so now we <laughs> they've joined us and, and so who knows who's next uh maybe you know librarians I, social I just, workers <laughs> uh, well, providers. and i think i think the league of women voters is also seen as part of the axis so yeah. Since they're not going to any of the forums or things anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't help myself. I got to add here on, on this topic and, and I hope I don't get myself in trouble, but as, as a, as a pull the veil uh, back from, from our job kind of thing, um, we had the pre the session preview forum uh, with the legislative leaders and, and uh, Senator Whitford couldn't make it. So Senator Sinclair uh, was there in his place. And one of the things she talked about was uh, wanting to form, and I can't remember if she said a task force or uh, study, whatever it was, to look into the issue of why I was having a hard time retaining teachers right now. And I tell you, if there's ever a moment that challenges reporters keeping their poker face um, and, and maintaining it a look of, of objectivity in the press conference, that, that I would put that one right up there with any other uh, that I could remember because I felt like I could have pretty quickly contributed to that study uh, in that moment had she asked. While we're talking about the legislature, Tom, I, I want to ask you about news this morning that uh, Quad City Senator Jim Lycombe has announced he will not seek re-election. Um, will this change Senator Robbie Smith's plans uh, for who announced he was running for statewide office? Um, I don't think so. Um, to be honest, um, it seems like, um, Robbie had, um, had expressed some interest and had been looking at, uh, running for, um, a statewide office, um, for, for, for quite some time. Um, and I, I don't really think that, um, yeah, Jim Lycombe's announcement of his retirement is really going to, to change that and affect those plans. Um, you know, he, he announced, um, pretty early on, you know, uh, that, that he was going to run for, um, state treasurer, you know, I mean, um, you know, they, they, they changed the, the, the legislative district maps and it wasn't too long after that, that I think, you know, Robbie had announced that he was going to run for that office. All right. Moving along here, as we've alluded to, uh, the governor has proposed a flat tax, a flat income tax of with a rate of 4%. Um, it was part of her condition of the state speech, which was described as big, bold, meaty, ambitious, at least according to Republicans. Democrats had other thoughts about it. Um, the highlight was her proposal to phase in the flat tax uh, that she said would save Iowa income taxpayers $500 million the first year and fully phased in, it would save about $1.6 billion. 
Um, Steve Forbes would be so pleased with her. Uh, <laughs> Dating yourself there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just glad everybody caught the reference. But uh, <laughs> Todd, uh, a 4% tax rate sounds inviting to a lot of middle class and wealthier Iowans. Um, there's a sense of fairness in the rich guy paying the same tax rate as me, as my boss paying it, you know, the same rate as I do. Do Democrats run a risk that if they don't jump on board this train, they're going to get run over by it? Well, uh, you know, you mentioned Steve Forbes. I, I think, didn't he used to say that he was going to take the tax code out, shoot it and bury it behind the barn? I think that yeah, was, drive a stake that through, was drive a stake through its heart, and yeah, there was there yeah. was all sorts of graphic imagery about what he was yeah. going to do to the tax code. Uh, you know, the problem, I, I think, what Democrats are sort of seizing on, and it's, you know, some of the details of this are a little sketchy. We've got you know multiple tax brackets that are over four percent that will go down, but we also have two or three brackets under four percent, and I haven't read much about whether those whether those taxes will go up then for those lower income brackets. Uh, I guess if she's saying that this is gonna be fair and flat, you would assume that that's gonna to have to happen. Uh, and already, you know, you've, if you look at the full tax picture, which Democrats are arguing, uh, if, you, if you add together, you know, state and local taxes, including sales taxes and those sort of things, uh, folk, folks at the, on the bottom rungs pay a, a higher percent of their income in taxes than, than folks at the top of the, of the ladder. So, you know, there's a, there's, if, you know, dem progressive Democrats are going to make the argument that this is going to benefit a lot of wealthier people, some middle-class people, but it's also going to harm people at the, at the bottom of the ladder. And it's also being done at the time when, you know, we're, we're talking about cutting unemployment benefits by two months and, and some of these things that they want to do to get lazy Iowans out of their hammock as the, as the governor mentioned, it's it's hardly hammock weather, I would add, but but you know maybe someone's out there. Uh, so I think there, there's going to be a debate. It wouldn't surprise me in the end. Some Democrats will probably vote for this because they feel politically it's probably advantageous to vote for a tax cut. You know, believing that it's popular among the voters, but uh, there there are there are issues with with the. Uh, with the regressiveness of the Iowa tax system and how this will basically make it worse. Aaron, um, there are 10 states that have a flat tax and interestingly, at least I found it interesting that there's a mix of red states like Indiana and Kentucky and blue states like Illinois and Massachusetts that have the flat tax. Um, have flat taxes produced the kind of results that Governor Reynolds and legislative Republicans are talking about? Um, and, and they're talking about it pretty openly that this is a, a step towards eliminating the income tax down the road. Has anyone gone that, you know, taken it that far? Yeah, uh, so that's a uh, stay tuned. That, that's something I'm working my way through as we speak and, and uh, for a story on the weekend. But, but it, it, it appears that the evidence is murky at best on, on, you know, the impact of these kinds of things. And as you noted, it's a, it's a, it's a wide variety of States that have them. It's red and blue States that have them. Um, so it's, it's all over the map. And, and, um, I, and, and the other problem is it's, it's difficult to make an apples to apples comparison because you can't just look at the, that one tax rate because each state has its own different kinds of deductions and credits and and all those uh, other things that go into you know what a, what an each individual 
ultimately pays and taxes and, and what kind of effect that has on the greater picture. So um, I guess the short answer there is, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, exactly, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, wait and see. But please well, read it, all about it in your Gazette and Lean newspapers this weekend. Well, and I got, I got kind of caught up in the pro- progressivity issue, but there's also the budgetary issue. I mean, these are, right. this is a large tax cut. They're using pretty rosy uh, budget growth projections or revenue growth projections to make this thing affordable. Uh, so, you know, the, the other problem, the other, you know, area where Democrats are going to be concerned is if this leads to, you know, some, some budget cuts, some austerity down the road. I think they're probably okay for the first year because they have this surplus, but we've all seen how surpluses disappear and things change and economies go up and down. So uh, that's the other question that they haven't answered is, is this really going to be this, this size cut really going to be affordable? She's also cutting corporate income taxes, which she didn't mention in the speech, but is part of her part of her plan. Yeah. Yeah. To that real quick. That's a great point, Todd. And, and uh, they haven't really talked about it in public, but they, they did touch on that. Um, uh, the staff, governor's staff, um, as they do every year, um, had a, a briefing on the budget um, with uh, state house reporters. Um, and, and we asked them about that. And as you said, they have some revenue projections that they're expecting um, that would in their view, be able to pay for uh, this reduction. And to your point, if, if the, the, the cut they're proposing doesn't touch the taxpayer trust fund, it, it, it leaves it altogether. So if revenue were to fall short at any point, then they would use that then at that point to cover any shortfall. But as you noted, depending on how things go and, and who knows what kind of thing might happen, that could be exhausted uh, pretty quickly and, and you've made a permanent change in tax code. So that that's the, yeah. that's a fair concern. Amy, we we've touched on this before the sort of the, the social war or cultural war uh, aspect of uh, opening day speeches. Um, but um, in her condition of the state speech, the governor didn't go as far as Senate president Chapman attacking teachers and librarians. And she called for schools to publish their curriculums online. So everybody knows what's being taught. Most schools, I think all schools have a process and procedure um, for if a parent challenges a material or has questions about it. Is her approach going to satisfy the Chapmans or will it lead to more confrontations like we've seen at school board meetings um, over the summer and fall? I don't I don't think it'll probably satisfy, you know, Jake Chapman or, or other, you know, representatives that are also like in a lot redder districts. I mean, Reynolds has to contend with the fact that she won the last election by just over 50 percent. Chapman won his election by I'm looking at Ballotpedia 62.5. So he obviously has a lot more um, Republicans in his ear all the time. Um, and those Republicans could be slightly different, you know, than what. Reynolds has to contend to. So I think, and and we've seen this before, she's she's always tried to at least moderate a little bit, you know, and say that she would like to, you know, have a little bit more moderate policies. Um, now we've seen that in speeches, we've seen that in, in her public appearances, but then when it comes down to what they actually pass, she's generally pretty reliable. Like we've said, we haven't really seen any big meaningful vetoes. So I think, you know, as far as that goes, um, the rhetoric coming from her is is probably going to continue to be a little, a little bit more milder. Um, and then she will have the Chapmans, you know, go through and, and, and get the, get it done. And then she can claim that in the next election. Right. So she can say, you know, we got this done. If you liked that, 
Um, if you didn't, I really didn't say that we needed it, you know, kind of thing. So she's able to sort of, you know, equivocate a little bit there. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely, she doesn't have to basically play in those culture wars if she didn't want to, or she can just dip a toe in. You know, I think maybe she's still still testing out whether I was going to stay as red as it has been. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably going to, the biggest thing for her is it's probably going to help her sell this school voucher plan because now she can say, you know, see what's happening in these schools with the X-rated books. And it makes mm. a little, it makes a stronger argument for that than she had last year, just saying that people were upset with remote learning and stuff. This is, this is, this is red or meat that she can throw out and say, we got to help people get their kids out of these indoctrination centers. So that's, that's probably where the highest impact's going to be is on that proposal, which I think may actually go somewhere this year. Aaron, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think uh, Jake Chapman is facing uh, an incumbent senator um, in, in his district has changed and Democrats seem to have some optimism that he is, um, what's, the, what's the word, that they might be able to win that district. That he's vulnerable. Yeah, right. there's a, there's a couple of interesting things going on here, and and that you you've got the baseline there. Um, the district that he's uh, will be in in the new district under redistricting um, uh, changed a little bit, um, um, and he will face uh, Sarah Trone Garriott, who's an incumbent, um, first term incumbent. Um, um, is doing well within the Democratic circles. I, I don't know how she would do against uh, um, an incumbent Republican like Senator Chapman, but um, she's been very popular right off the bat with Democrats. The other interesting thing here is, and this is things that you hear, so who knows how much there is to it, but that Senator Chapman is considering a um, a, a move in uh, which I, I believe he would go westward into another district, um, which would be a little more... Uh, uh, safe. So, so that's still out there too. He could decide to um, um, pick another district and, and, and forgive me off the top of my head. I don't know if there's a district around him where there's no incumbent Republican where exactly um, he goes, I'll do my homework and ask me again next week. But, but I have heard that that's, <laughs> uh, I've heard that that's a possibility too, that he won't run in his, the district he's scheduled to that he may run in a different district. That, that seems to be a trend among Republican legislative leaders. Uh, said, <laughs> moving to a, a friendly. His boss is doing it. Yeah. Jack Whitford. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who, who's the boss there? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, I think it's worth mentioning that the prospects for bipartisanship, if anyone really meant it, ended with, ended with the governor's speech in the Democratic response, House Minority Leader Jennifer Confer said, look, I don't think we need to do anything that was proposed tonight. <laughs> Later, she did. Does that, uh, does that mean Democrats go home then for the session? I mean, if well, <laughs> considering the Republican majorities, um, maybe they should. I don't know. She went on to say that she thought there, there were areas where they could find agreement, say, broadband, child care, some of those issues. Apparently the price for uh, that agreement is for Republicans to admit that the American Rescue Plan is coming from Joe Biden and that's what's fueling all this success in Iowa, um, that it, it's happening because of Joe Biden and congressional Democrats. But yeah, I don't think there's gonna be a, a public uh, admission of that anytime soon. 
Uh, also this week, a pair of Iowa Congresswomen, Senator Joni Ernst and Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks, went to the floor of the Senate to attack Democrats' efforts to change the sil Senate filibuster rule to clear the way for voting rights legislation. In a floor speech, Ernst accused Democrats of using, quote, fake hysteria, hyster fake hysteria to blow up the Senate and fundamentally change our country. It sounds rather sinister. In other effort, <laughs> in their effort to promote election changes that are unpopular, unnecessary, and unacceptable, um, they have some experience, if not expertise, in that area. Ernst is a former county auditor and commissioner of the elections, and Miller Meeks won her election by six votes after recounts in the 24 counties of the second district. She called Miller Meeks called the election changes Democrats are pursuing quote, partisan power grab. Tom, what's their beef with the Freedom to Vote Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Act? So the pair claim that Democrats proposed election reforms would undermine states' ability to run elections and would overturn state laws and election procedures. They contend safeguard voting and promote confidence in the integrity of elections. That includes Iowa's voter ID law and tightening rules related to voting by mail. Uh, limiting a voting method that has had uh, growing appeal after many states expanded those options um, to make voting safer during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Democrats, including uh, U.S. Representative Cindy Axney of West Des Moines, argue that efforts in Iowa and other states restrict ballot, ballot box access and that legislation, including the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, is needed to restore voting rights and combat voter suppression. Uh, Iowa was among the first states to enact voting restrictions following the 2020 presidential election under a Republican-backed uh, nationwide push to pass the so-called election integrity measures. Um, the new law enacted last spring shortens Iowa's early voting period, shortens the period to request mail-in ballots, restricts the ability of county auditors to establish satellite uh, in-person early voting sites and bars election officials from proactively sending ballot requests um, among other provisions. Uh, Ernst though argued that since Iowa's voter ID law was implemented uh, that the state has seen record high turnout for elections and quote, huge voter participation end quote, uh, including record high absentee voting in the 2020 election. Um, Ernst, too, pushed back on the notion that uh, voters are being suppressed in red states all over the country, noting states like Delaware and New York, home to President Joe Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, respectively, make, make casting a ballot more difficult. So, Tom, given that Democrats control the agenda, uh, but efforts to change the filibuster rule seem doomed, was this just political theater? Uh, I think so. As you mentioned, the prospects of changing the 60 vote threshold in the Senate seem doomed. Um, Biden and Senate Democratic leadership can't seem to shake resistance within their own party from uh, Senators Joe Manchin and fellow centrist uh, Kirsten Sinema. And despite Biden's private visit um, with Democratic senators this week and next week's floor showdown on election and voting legislation and possible rule changes, uh, Manchin and Cinema um, are only digging in. Um, so yeah, to, to, to some extent, I think that, uh, yeah, what you saw from Ernst and Miller Meeks was, was um, political theater. Also this week, Tom, uh, you, you talked to Senator Chuck Grassley and he explained how that as a champion of term limits, 
He has served in elected office for 63 years and is seeking an eighth term in the U.S. Senate. So how many terms before he's term limited? <laughs> yeah. Um, so Grassley on Wednesday, as you mentioned, marked 63 consecutive years in public office. Grassley, who is 88, was sworn into the Iowa House on January 12th, 1959, at the ripe old age of 25. Um, so, <laughs> and he would be 95 um, at the end of his term if reelected and uh, would have served 70 consecutive years in public office. Um, and so, uh, you know, he was asked about this on his um, weekly conference call with, with Iowa reporters and, and was asked about um, term limits, um, which, uh, his, uh, his Democratic opponents in, in the race um, have been um, pushing for and kind of, um, you know, knocking him on. So um, he mentioned that uh, he has voted for and supported proposals limiting members of Congress to 12-year terms. Uh, that'd be two full terms in the Senate, six in the House. Um, and uh, during this conference call, the reporter said that, uh, quote, and I did that because I believe in it. Um, however, um, you know, those plans either didn't make it out of committee, were tabled when they reached the floor, or they fell short of the two-thirds majority needed to begin the process for uh, amending the U.S. Constitution. Um, and then, you know, asked, okay, well, if you support term limits, why are you seeking an eighth term? Um, Grassley said that not seeking re-election absent term limits would deprive Iowans of strong, effective leadership in the Senate to uh, advance policies that benefit Iowa families, farmers, and businesses. He said, uh, quote, you would be diluting the influence of your state if you decide to quit after two terms when other people don't have that. He said that um, he's looking to the future, working for Iowans, um, and that uh, no one can help Iowans in the U.S. Senate more than Chuck Grassley because of his uh, seniority. And, um, and, and um, being able to advance, uh, again, policies um, for, for, for Iowans. Um, and as I mentioned, his um, Democratic um, opponents in the race, you know, have, have, have hammered him um, on this issue. Um, excuse me. Uh, Democratic former Congresswoman and state uh, lawmaker Abby Finkenauer uh, in a statement uh, said that, quote, uh, 47 years in Washington, D.C. is uh, too damn long for anyone. Um, and uh, he said that I don't care who you are or which party. I don't think that he even knows why he's running and Iowa deserves so much more. If I can just interject there. Sorry, Tom. Uh, I, I appreciate why Abby's saying that. But if, if she's saying that should apply to either party, I wonder whether that applies to her president. And right. how long he's been in Washington. <laughs> True. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much anybody in the Senate. Uh, you know, you look at <laughs> leadership in the Senate. They've all been around for eons. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I'm sure as he's winding up his eighth term, um, Grassley will still be defending his tenure in the Senate and living off, as he called it, living off the governor, government teat, um, you know, so moving right along here, banned in the Senate. It appears the House and Senate have uh, different standards. A number of years ago, under Democratic control, I believe the House adopted a rule prohibiting lobbyists from entering the chamber 
even if only passing through from the rotunda to the offices behind the chamber. They're welcome to walk through the Senate, but reporters are banned. That means Aaron is banned from the Senate chamber. Um, how's that going? You miss it? it? It makes me feel special like an LGBTQ school library book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am just for a pedantic clarification. We can still work in the Senate. We just have to work upstairs. We're banned from the Senate floor, um, although uh, that is a, a still a big move. Uh, it's, it stinks. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, it's, uh, and look, I, the point I have continually made throughout this is this isn't about media versus Republicans. This isn't about um, media throwing a temper tantrum um, about having a cool seat um, at an event. Um, this is about being able to do our jobs. This really, really is. And, and it, I, I, I hope people believe me when I say that because it, it is literally about nothing else for us. Um, there's logistical reasons that it's terrible. Um, talk about the challenges of working from the upstairs gallery versus uh, on the floor in the, in the stations, the workstations, the desks that were literally built for that purpose. Um, funny how that works out a lot better than a, a, a little seat that was built for uh, when Americans were peaking at 5'11 and, and 150 pounds. Um, and, uh, and then there's the, the even bigger issue of, which is access um, and uh, being able to be right there on the floor and have that connection and that opportunity to talk to legislators because they're right there. We can't walk onto the floor, but it's much easier when you're right there um, you know, on press row and can just throw up a hand and, or, or catch them as they're walking by on the way out the door. And, and we have, you can talk to anybody who has um, worked up at the state house. You can ask your local lawmaker about this. And if they're being honest, they'll tell you the same thing. We have those exchanges constantly throughout a day. Um, and, and it all helps inform our work. Um, it, it makes what we're doing better. It helps them. You know, if they've got a bill and we've got a question on it, you know, we can get that clarification and make our reporting even better. Um, it's just it's it's just <laughs> such a better setup in exponentially so uh, on the floor than it is. Can, can we still do our job from the gallery? hundred percent. Absolutely. And we will. Um, but it's just it's it, it's it's a lot tougher and, and, and I, and they worry that it won't be as good. And this isn't theoretical either. We have an example of this because of last year's legislative session where we worked from up there um, during the pandemic. And at the time uh, we were as a group, okay with that. Most reporters weren't coming to the building anyways. Um, and it made sense to try and space people out. But if you talk to anyone who covers the state house regularly, they'll tell you last year was just a weird year. We didn't get to know lawmakers like we usually do. We probably missed bills and stories that we otherwise wouldn't have. Um, um, and so this isn't a theoretical thing. We, we know that this doesn't work well and, and, it's, and it's frustrating that we're here. The other, the other point I would make is that, and I spent two days at the, the Capitol this week um, in the house, um, the number of times lawmakers walk up to the press bench to talk to reporters about something that is happening, yep. a bill that they have, something that's going to be in committee or subcommittee that you you might be interested in this. I've got this great idea for blah, blah, blah. And those sorts of things aren't going to happen. Senate President Jake Chapman can't walk over to the press bench and say, 
you know, and say you guys have a sinister agenda. I mean, he, he can't deliver that message personally now. And, and, and quite honestly, um, and not to demean legislators at all, but a lot of them are not going to go up to the gallery to make those sorts of connections. For, I mean, there is an elevator, but um, you know, a lot of them aren't going to walk up steps to do that. And it, it's just, you know, it's out of their way, so they're not going to do that. And, and Aaron, you're, I, I believe you're absolutely right that we miss things and nuances that we would uh, gain when they're walking over and saying, this is what I meant, or this is, this is uh, you know, the bill that I think you're going to be interested in, or I'm going to offer an amendment. And it's not just Republicans, it's Democrats. It, quite often, it's the minority party that comes over and says, you know, I have this amendment to a Republican-sponsored bill. And so, yeah, it, it's, we'll continue to do our jobs. Uh, it will be harder. And, and it's not that we're not the losers. Uh, it, it's the, the public, the, the readers, the listeners uh, who will be the losers, who will not be as well informed. Um, I guess, Todd, um, you know, as we look ahead, uh, the League of Women Voters is planning a restore press access rally at the Capitol um, to let the Iowa, to let senators know that the Iowa press are an essential part of providing information to Iowa voters. Maybe that's what Chapman means by a sinister agenda. I'll be, uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see how many people show up to rally for press access. I, I fear, <laughs> right. I fear it may be one of the smaller rallies of, of all time. Um, you are, you, you are um, speaking my nightmare right now, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you know, and this, the Senate gives the reason that they, you know, they're all confused by all of these online news sources now, and they can't decide what the definition of media should be, which frankly, I don't think they should be deciding what the definition of media is because we all know what they think of the media and we all know that they don't, that basically their, their litmus test for media is do they write things I like or do they write things I don't like? If you don't like them, then they're not. <laughs> we won't credential them. So <clears throat> that's what they say. You know, that's a really thin excuse. They should, anybody that wants to get credentials for the day or the week or the session to, to watch the Senate. I mean, there's not a big, it's, there's not a huge lack of space. I mean, there's, it, it can be done. I mean, they could, and you know, that's what it should be. It's, we have a free press and a first amendment for that reason. So let people in to watch what the Senate's doing and let them watch it from the, the Senate floor. So, and, you know, on the one hand, it's this battle that they're waging sort of to keep certain people from being credentialed and and not wanting to you know let Laura Bellin in to because she's she's very scary and they don't want to have to take questions from her. Uh, but uh, then you think, well, it's not political, and I agree with Aaron that it shouldn't be. But then you get this sinister agenda thing popping out this week. So maybe in the Senate, we've seen the difference between the House and the Senate. The House is letting reporters work from the floor as usual, but in the Senate, they're not. And then we've got the president that thinks the media's got a sinister agenda. Maybe there's a little more than meets the eye, which is really sad. And I would, I would hope that they they reconsider this. I'm not optimistic, but it really is. A, it really does hamper journalists ability to do their job and and you know you have to be in the, you know it's like you don't you know that i think joe bolcom made the made the comparison that you know 
Gary Dolphin and Bobby Hansen don't sit up in the popcorn stand while the Iowa game's going on. They're like on the floor. So there are a lot of things that happen on the legislative floor that aren't spoken into microphones. I mean, there are, you know, things happen. I mean, one year when I was covering, two guys got into a scuffle on the floor during a eminent domain debate. So, and you can, there's also the, the arguments in the well that you can hear about procedure and, and lots of confusing things happen. So it's good to say, hey, what the hell's going on? What, what are you doing? Uh, that's pretty tough from the rafters. So yeah, they, they, need to, they need to reverse this. Todd, I just want to say, I don't know which I love more about that story. A, that there was a scuffle between legislation on the floor or that it was over an eminent domain bill. There's something about that just, <laughs> just perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I that's about the only time I think I saw anything like that. But you know, <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, as journalists, uh, contrary to what uh, Senate President Chapman might believe, we're um, you know, we're all for truth and openness. So, uh, Amy, Tom, Aaron, Todd, you want to confess your sinister agendas? <laughs> My sinister agenda is I only go to some events just for the free food. That's my sinister agenda. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's true of many um, journalists. You'd make a great sports writer. Uh, and, I can, and I can say that because I'm a former one. My, my sinister agenda is that uh, I only took a job in Iowa just so I'd get a lot of Iowa Hawkeye social media followers and can give them crap when the Badgers win. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's small consolation, Aaron, but at least when you're banished up to the gallery in the Senate, you can wear your members of the Sinister Media t-shirt from Ray Gun. <laughs> Are you making best. those? Did, oh yeah, Reagan already has. They're on the site. Yeah. Check those out. Of course that, they have. Oh, of course they have. Yeah, they've already done it. Yeah, they're already up. That's Reagan. They're they're on top of those things. They're amazing. All, you joke, but that I've actually literally had that thought that the silver lining here is I don't have to wear my jacket every time in the Senate yeah. now. <laughs> That's right. That's I'm, right. Not, I'm, I'm not required bound by the the floor. Uh, well, so, so long rules. as you so long as you still have access to some of the most delicious coffee in Iowa well, yeah. down <laughs> behind the chamber in case you in case you need to take the paint off something. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes legislative coffee it's 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 why i work here <laughs> i'm pretty sure that ju judging by the notes i get from raiders i i'm pretty sure my sinister agenda is just like being alive and doing what i do so that's 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 pretty much that's pretty that's much sinister it, enough it, for it, them in the nutshell just who you are yeah intrinsically the fact that i still live in the state is my sinister i am agenda. sinister <laughs> <laughs> well that's it for this edition of on iowa politics if you enjoy the podcast tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast send fan mail to the podcast at the gazette.com don't forget the work of everyone you heard today can be found on the pages and websites of the quad city times waterloo cedar falls courier sioux city journal mason city globe gazette muscatine journal council bluffs daily nonpareil and the cedar rapids gazette Porch Builder will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. 
For Aaron, Amy, Todd, Tom, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well. <laughs>